qualifications that he himself has given us. And so those are critical. And of course, built into that, to those qualifications, to some extent, are the responsibilities themselves. They kind of come through. Then we talked about the qualifications of their wives. Not a lot given about that, but again, interestingly, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he doesn't sidestep that matter. Even though, notice that even though an elder's wife wields no authority, she holds no office, she simply happens to be married to a man who has been appointed to a specific role and work in the church. And yet, God says, you know, she needs to possess certain attributes that will be conducive to the work that he has been assigned to do. And in this same chapter, we have deacons, and by implication, their wives as well. And we will perhaps address that later on, but I wanted to stay focused on elders. So we, if I remember right, we ended last time with the wives of elders and their qualities, their character features that they are to give attention to. Now we want to turn our attention to the matter of selection. How are these men to be selected? What has God said about that? And I promise you, maybe you too in your lifetime, you've heard all sorts of ways that elders have been installed. The most, I guess, most outrageous one I heard about was when I was up in southern Illinois working with a congregation, and there was another congregation three or four miles away, and they indicated that the way they selected elders was they basically just stood before the church and said, okay, you know, does anybody want to be an elder? And two or three guys raised their hand, and so they said, okay, you're the eldership. And I'm thinking, where would you get from the Bible that God would be pleased with that? Because built into the selection of elders has to be an examination of that individual's qualifications or lack thereof. Well, who's going to do that? Is it simply incumbent upon the individual to look introspectively and decide, I think I meet him, and then that be the end of it? Well, incredibly, there is a lot of information on this subject. First, I ask the question, well, anywhere in the Bible, Old or New Testament, have there been selection processes that God himself has instigated or that God approves of? And come to find out, there absolutely are. Of course, the most prominent one, I suppose, perhaps, in Scripture is that God just picks people. And he's done that many times in history without any input uh, from human beings. You remember he did that with Moses. He went to Moses and said, I want you to go do this. And Moses made excuses but ultimately agreed. Same thing with Joshua. Uh, Joshua was not selected by Moses or anybody else except God. God selected him. Do you remember when God uh, uh, selected Samuel? Um, and immediately began speaking to him about Eli. And then, of course, Saul. You know, when, when the time came for there to be a king, I believe God was against that. I don't think he approved of it. And I think that the people that clamored for it violated his will. Uh, but he anticipated it. And so he went ahead and uh, gave them the best man for the job at the time, which was uh, not necessarily the, 
uh, a really good man. He had a lot of, of grievous spiritual flaws, and yet it was God who selected him. And in fact, uh, Prophet Hosea, I think, comments on this fact uh, that's uh, well discussed in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, is it not? 7 and 8, where God basically says, you know, this is not my will. Samuel comes and whines to God and, and says, you know, they, they want a king and they rejected me. They don't want me. And he said, they haven't rejected you. They rejected me. And you go back and you protest and you tell them, here's all the bad things that are going to happen because of your insistence on this. And then just go ahead and give them the king. There was God's attitude about that. And no wonder the prophet then could say, I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. And they had a dismal history, did they not? Uh, really from then forward. When you take a look at all those kings, the 19 northern, none of them worth their salt period, and most of the southern kings. It was a dismal period of several hundred years, about 400 years in all. And uh, all because they insisted this is the way we want this to be. And that can so often characterize God's people in the Lord's church. Get it in their mind. This is what we want. This is how we want it to be. And God's attitude is, okay, go ahead. And then you'll suffer the consequences. David was selected, you remember. Uh, God sent Samuel to uh, Jesse's house. And Jesse began working through those boys and got all the way through, what, seven of them uh, before he came to the one. And that's when God said, this is him. This is him, the youngest. And then you move into the New Testament and the apostles were selected by deity, not by human beings. So that's a very prominent approach to selection in scripture. But of course, obviously that's not how we could select leaders in the Lord's church. So in that sense... Uh, that's not of assistance to us. The second way that stands out in Scripture, the way decisions and selections were made, was by the casting of lots. And there's a lot of discussion among uh, Bible students about what these were and how it was done, and I can't find uh, any biblical clarification that settles the matter. Uh, some argue that the Urim and the Thummim that was in the, uh, the part of the uh, coat that uh, the high priest wore were used for this purpose uh, by which they could petition God or uh, ask God and the use of these apparently uh, uh, stones that were encased uh, could be used to make those decisions. But whatever means this was done, as you work on down through Bible history, they didn't continue to have those uh, tools and so apparently they would use other things and uh, I've seen everything from dice to uh, polished sticks or other objects. Uh, it, I don't suppose any of that is, is of great importance, just some means by which um, a determination can be made without human intervention. And so one of the main purposes of casting lots was to guarantee an impartial, unbiased decision uh, on an important matter. That way nobody could say, hey, this isn't fair, I don't agree with your decision, because nobody made the decision. It was made purely impartially uh, for everybody who wanted to be there and be a part of that. No one could argue that it was um, inappropriate. 
Now, it's obvious that casting lots was not limited to God's people in both the Old and the New Testament because we have, for example, the example of Roman soldiers that cast lots for the clothing of Jesus. So it, there were other cultures that used this as well. They were obviously using it more as a gambling device, and, and that's not the way it's used in Scripture in a, in a positive sense. It's simply a way to accomplish a decision uh, without the humans having to decide it. Which brings us then uh, to some very important passages. In uh, Acts chapter 1, you don't find a lot of this in the New Testament, but there are a few occurrences of it. Uh, this is after Jesus has returned to heaven, and uh, they are gathered, the disciples, about what, 120, are gathered there in Jerusalem, and they are wanting to find a successor or appoint a successor to Judas. And so they first look at the apostolic articulated qualifications for an apostle. Notice these did not come from men. They come from God. <clears throat> and then, based on those qualifications, they came up with two possibilities. Now notice that humans made that decision. They took the qualifications that God gave them and looked at these individuals and concluded, well, these two guys meet these qualifications from God. Then they prayed to God, who knows the hearts, to show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry. And that's when they then cast the lots. So in their thinking, this was allowing God to step in and make the decision rather than in the apostles or any other humans. And the lot fell on Matthias. Well, notice Proverbs 16. This is a very powerful passage that explicitly states that even though it's human beings that have these objects and they cast it into their, you know, their clothing or whatever, whatever they're using as the receptacle in which to put the... the uh, these devices by which this decision could be made, this passage explicitly affirms that God would make the decision. You could count on the outcome being God's will. I don't know any other way to understand that passage. And also in Proverbs, casting lots causes contentions to cease. Why? Because it takes it out of the hands of men who are making the decision. And nobody, therefore, can legitimately argue with it. And therefore, they won't come to blows or anything. It keeps uh, disagreeing uh, factions or parties uh, from coming together and having uh, disagreements. Now, those are both very, I think, germane, applicable, important passages to make sense of this. So that is one of the, uh, one of the means by which uh, decisions, selection methods could be made. Now, my personal opinion is that this is probably not what we should rely on. In fact, in spite of the fact that all of our liberal churches are doing a host of all kinds of things, I haven't heard of any of them doing this. And they would have more scriptural, I think, uh, justification for doing so. But notice that uh, just because the Bible tells us about something doesn't necessarily mean that we are authorized to use that or engage in that practice today. There would have to be some contextual or accumulative information in the New Testament by which we've come to that decision and so far as I know, unless somebody has more input on this that would be helpful to us, uh, I would uh, shy away from uh, using this particular method. 
A third method that is very prominent really throughout the Bible, and uh, particularly in the New Testament, is where the membership participates in and ultimately makes the selections. And there is abundant evidence beginning in Acts chapter 6. This, you remember, is after Christianity has been launched, the Church of Christ has been established, um, the church is at Jerusalem, uh, the apostles are there essentially functioning uh, in a dual way, both as apostles and really as elders. So far as I know, they don't have elders at this point. And uh, so they're kind of relying upon the, the apostles, and that's partially what uh, is the catalyst for this need to select some other people. Uh, the specific need, of course, was the fact that in, the early, in that first century church, a member composed uh, entirely of Jews, but there are some Jews that are of the Hebrew uh, culture, so they spoke Hebrew, that was their culture, their ethnic background. But there are other Jews there, no doubt also eth ethnically Jews, but they had been Hellenized, that is, uh, living away probably from uh, a more influential community of Hebrew-speaking Jews. They were in more of a Greek culture and Greek context, so they spoke Greek. And uh, sadly, uh, one of the first problems that arose in the church is that these widows, some of them, specifically the uh, Jewish, um, the Hellenist, uh, the Greek-speaking women, uh, felt that they were being neglected in the assistance that was being provided uh, for widows. You know, we don't have time really to look at this, but uh, the New Testament is also very explicit and detailed on this matter. You know, when you think in terms of, okay, uh, assisting widows, how does God want that done? Does he want it done? And I'm telling you, 1 Timothy goes into great detail on that and lays out just as specific qualifications as we have for elders and for deacons, uh, for those who are to receive the assistance of the church. And in my lifetime, I haven't really heard that stressed or uh, practiced probably uh, like we should be more attentive to it. Uh, here's the argumentation of the apostles. We don't have time to deal with this. And not that it's not a noble task and an important role in the church, but we can't do everything, and apostles were not appointed to be apostles for that purpose. And so in order for us to fulfill the role that God has assigned us, uh, we can't stop and do this. We would neglect the role that God has assigned us. So what we need to do, and by the way, the verb here, serve, tables, is uh, a form of the word of the noun, diakonos, deacon. Uh, so he's saying, they're saying we don't have time to leave the word that is the role that we play in presenting the gospel. And, and, and they're essentially giving us the New Testament orally, weren't they? That's what the apostles were doing before it had been committed to writing. And we don't have time to stop doing that in order to engage in deacon activity, in order to deacon. That would be a suitable translation. Therefore, brethren, look at the term brethren here. This is a reference to the congregation, to the members of the church there in Jerusalem, members at large. Seek out from among you. So the first thing we learn about this selection process is that the apostles didn't do it. They told the members to do it. And what were the members to do? They were to seek out from among them 
individuals that met certain qualifications. And you see the three or four that are listed there. And by implication, uh, another one here, a man full of faith. So the members did the selecting, and they, but again, see, members are not just to say, well, you know, I like that person, or I think that person is a good person, and I think that person would do a good job. None of that is acceptable to God. You must look at objective, very specific qualifications and ascertain whether that individual possesses that qualification. And if that person does, then the member has a right to put forward the name of that individual. Now notice that the apostles did the appointing, but you must not conclude that they therefore selected these seven men. Because we've already been told that the brethren were the ones who looked out from among themselves and picked out these individuals. Notice uh, how this whole text lays out. The term 12 there refers to the apostles, right? They summoned the multitude of the disciples. That refers to the members of the congregation. Therefore, brethren, that refers to the members... Seek out from among you, that's the membership, not the apostles, whom we, the apostles, may appoint over this business. Well, the saying pleased the whole church, the whole membership, and who is the they referred to? That multitude, the church, the rank and file members of Jerusalem, chose the men, the seven men whose names are listed, and then the apostles uh, this same group of people then set these seven before the apostles. See, so essentially they're, they're chosen. They're selected, not by the apostles, but by the membership. They set them before the apostles, and then the apostles are the ones that engaged in the formal appointment of them. So look closely at this word here, uh, appoint. Members did the selecting based on qualifications given by God, not our own feelings about the matter, and then the apostles merely appointed. All right, look closely at this word appointed. Let's look at it in some other passages so that we don't miss the point. The way it's used there in Acts 6 is, in fact, by the way, look at your different translations. I, I forgot to refresh my memory on the King James, but it probably has ordained. And uh, translations can give you the, the, a misimpression where you're thinking, man, they're the ones that are selecting and ordaining these guys. Uh, newer translations tend to, uh, beginning with American standards, tend to say appoint. And I think a better translation would be to install or confirm. That way the English reader doesn't get confused and think that the apostles are doing the selecting. Here's some uh, parallel passages. This is uh, Paul speaking to Titus. Remember, Titus is an evangelist. He's not an apostle. He's an evangelist, a preacher, and he's working on the island of Crete where there's apparently more than one church of Christ, and he's kind of circulating among them. And Paul tells him that you are to set in order the things that are lacking. We're not told what all that consists of, but it clearly consists of teaching them about the eldership, as we see in the rest of that chapter. And... Appoint elders in every city, as I commanded you. See, if you just look at that verse by itself, 
you're liable to get the idea that Titus went around the, the, the island going to these congregations, maybe showed up on a Sunday morning when the whole church was assembled, and then said, okay, uh, you know, Fred, Joe, and Jim, you guys are the elders here now. And then he moves on to the next church. You could get that impression by just looking at that verse. And obviously that is the impression that some of our brethren have gotten. Because some of our brethren believe in the doctrine of evangelistic oversight. That's where the preacher is essentially an elder, simply by virtue of the fact that he's a preacher. I've even heard some of our brethren refer to him as a pastor, even though he's just a preacher. He wasn't selected to be an elder. Therefore, they believe that the elders are not uh, over the preacher. If anything, he's over them because he gets to select them. That's their reasoning. But that is simply not what the Bible teaches, and they complete. this is their key passage to try to advance that concept. But that is simply not what is taking place here. Titus, like the apostles back in Acts 6, were merely installing the elders that were selected by the members of the congregation. And they were to select based on the same elder qualifications that were given to all the churches by Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, Titus in Titus 1, and no doubt... Uh, other settings, even though God hasn't detailed all of those uh, circumstances. Another uh, passage would be Acts chapter 14, uh, when they, and in, in context it's Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders. This is the same term that's used, and therefore, uh, and in context I think clearly is referring to the same concept. And notice this was done in every church. Again, you might get the idea, okay, then they went around and they just picked the people in these churches. You know, even on the surface, that doesn't make sense because even, even if they're inspired men, Barnabas, of course, was not an apostle in that full sense of the twelve, but uh, <clears throat> unless they were miraculously informed when they went into a congregation, they wouldn't know who's qualified. You know, who's most in a position to know who's qualified? Well, the people that are around them and live with them and know them, and that's the membership. Uh, Titus and Paul didn't, so far as we know, place membership at any of these places and stayed. The longest Paul stayed at one place was, what, in uh, Corinth uh, for three, a little over three years. So it makes perfect sense when you fit all this together that he's simply saying you, you initiate this process, get the church involved, get them doing this, and once they're selected, you appoint them so that the members know that this is an official uh, acknowledged role that they are to fulfill. Moving to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, this is where uh, Paul talks about the um, money that was to be given to the poor saints and uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, he points out that uh, we've uh, sent Titus um, and also this brother that was chosen by the churches to travel with us. But what are the churches doing making that decision? You'd think the apostles would make that decision. But no, it's like Scripture's going out of its way to emphasize to us that um, the church is to have a role and a responsibility in these matters. So he was selected by the churches to be involved, not as an elder, but in traveling with this gift, which would certainly be an important responsibility, but I wouldn't think that would... Uh, come close to the responsibility of being an elder. And yet even in this appointment, 
the churches were involved. An obvious pattern is developing here. That in the early church, there was the need to recognize the autonomy of local churches. We understand that, don't we? You and I have absolutely nothing to say to Dalraden about the way they operate or anything. Now, if we hear that they're preaching error, engaging in some error as just fellow Christians that love them, we might go in there and say, hey, we hear about this. You know, is that good for you? You shouldn't be doing it. But we don't have any authority to tell them what to do. That's unlike the denominations that have, you know, a hierarchy and those on the upper levels exercise authority over multiple churches, not so in the New Testament. Every church is autonomous. It has its own internal organization and structure and its own leaders who, who wield authority in that congregation. And that's as far as it goes. So the autonomy of the local church is clearly reflected in all of these passages. All right, I took you to these three to show you, as the American Standard translates, that we're talking here about appointing, not selecting, and therefore this is simply a formal installation of these individuals who have already been pre-selected by the membership at large. Now, going back to Acts 6, look at this again carefully. When the apostle said, brethren, seek out from among you. Look at those words, seek out. Does that not imply that there's going to have to be a process by which that can be accomplished? That, that there's going to have to be some examination of individuals and their qualifications and qualities. Somebody's going to have to do that in such a way that that process reflects the whole congregation. And notice that implies then there's going to have to be some talk going on. You know, you're even going to be talking about another brother. Well, isn't that gossip? Well, it must not be because elders to be selected have to be examined by the members. And then once they are appointed elders, they're going to have meetings in which they talk about members of the congregation with regard to their spiritual condition. So you can't set up a contradiction and say, well, that's gossip and gossip is wrong. It's not sinful for there to be discussions about a person's spiritual condition with the purpose of being uh, to save their soul or, in this case, uh, to determine whether they meet the qualifications that the Holy Spirit has given uh, by which they can serve in that capacity. Notice then that Seek out implies some process or systematic method by which the congregation may do three things collectively. One, think through the qualifications. You know, you can't just say, okay, everybody wants to be participate in this, be here tonight. You know, the first thing you ought to do is what we're doing. Do the members at large even know what these qualifications mean? How dare anybody come and put input in on, well, I think this person's qualified. Well, you do? Okay, what does uh, soon angry mean? I don't know. Well, how do you know that person is not guilty of that? So before you even know whether the person is qualified, you've got to know what the qualifications mean to do what God tells you to do. Number two, how does it apply to these potential appointees? So I've got to understand the qualification I've got to understand their spiritual condition with, uh, with regard to these qualifications. And then there has to be some sort of procedure by which this information that is gathered by the members at large 
can be properly applied and pit individuals selected and then installed. That all is implied by the command that we are to search out, look out from among us. Look at some of these other passages. In Acts 15, it pleased the apostles and elders, look at the terminology here, with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company uh, to Antioch. So the entire church was involved in solving the problem that they were facing and selecting representatives. See, why, why does the Bible go out of its way to do this? Why didn't it just say the apostles and elders decided it? There must be some indication, again, of God's view of how this ought to be conducted in local churches. Look at these uh, two verses or passages from Corinthians, which is, again, talking about this uh, benevolent, these benevolent funds that were to be sent to Jerusalem. Uh, when I come, whomever you approve by your letters will send. So notice, you can just envision. Uh, the church gathers. They're having, because that's who the letters are addressed to, you know. They're not addressed to the elders at Corinth. They're not addressed to the preacher at Corinth. It's addressed to the church. And so he's writing them and saying that you all need to get together and have a discussion about this and select from among yourselves individuals that you all think are qualified to do this. And then you let us know who they are and whoever you approve, send us a letter so we know who they are and they then will be able to bear your monies to Jerusalem. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? But again, it shows the role that God wants the church to play. Moving over to 2 Corinthians, we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, he was chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift. Chosen, not by the apostles, but by the churches, the very people that would be familiar and acquainted with him. So even an apostle did not presume to interfere with the participation of the members. Moving to Acts chapter 11, this is talking about some mission efforts that were uh, underway. Uh, news of this came to the church in Jerusalem, so they uh, sent out Barnabas. Who sent, him, sent out Barnabas? The apostles? No, the church. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Uh, this they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas. Who sent it? The disciples. Once again, the congregation was involved in this activity. All right. Here then are some uh, concluding observations and conclusions uh, on this subject. This is kind of a little bit off the beaten path, but it's, it's a conclusion that I believe follows, and I question whether or not our brethren have acknowledged this. So usually in a congregation, once an eldership is appointed, then everything's pretty much turned over to them and they get to decide, even adding to their number. So my first question is, now, where's the authority for that? And we would say, well, they're the elders. Yes, but elders can't do everything. They're not authorized just because, of, by virtue of the fact that they're elders, to just do anything they want. Their work is very specifically indicated in Scripture. And if the Bible gives us the procedure by which elders are to be selected in the first place, why would you assume that same process is not to continue even after you have an eldership? In fact, what happens in, in congregations at times is the eldership becomes a self-perpetuating board. 
because the human tendency is to not put into a role with you somebody that you don't think would get along well with your thinking in such a capacity. Isn't that just human nature? Of course, then you might question whether that elder is qualified. But my point is um, we are on much safer ground to when we install elders to do it the same way we would do it the first time and not assume that suddenly we would do it a different way. And the preacher, of course, uh, although he's a member of a congregation and have, has as much right to give input on such a process as any other member, he does not wield authority in such a way that he can decide the matter. Notice that God did not specify or elaborate one particular selection process. You know, he laid out the qualifications. Why didn't he in the next chapter say, now here's how to go about this? Appointed committee composed of this many members and there to go through this process. Where's all that specificity? Where's that detail? It's not there. That implies then that the members have to sort through this in harmony with these principles and come up with a means by which it is done. And our brethren have done this over the years and come up with many different ways to do this. And it's very rare that I have seen them do something unscriptural, uh, even though it may not be something that we've always done it that way. Here are the uh, specific principles that I think we see in all these passages. Number one, the membership is to select its own leaders. The membership is to select its leaders based strictly on the qualifications that God gave. Now, I have to admit to you that I've been in congregations where uh, I thought there were rank-and-file members that were ignorant. They lacked a study of the Bible. And sometimes they caused trouble by submitting the names of individuals that were no more qualified than a, than a man in the moon. So that kind of hampered the process. So you could say, well, is this a weakness then? Well, if this is how God says to do it, then I guess we just have to deal with that and try to put safeguards in by which that can be uh, dealt with. And I think that can be done. Uh, therefore, some process or method has to be formulated by which these principles uh, can be enacted. Now, even though I would argue that the church at large appears in these passages to all have a role, uh, we do also know that the Bible teaches the principle of male leadership in the church. And so while women should be involved in this process, be informed about this process, be permitted to have input on this process, uh, because these uh, elders will be shepherds of their souls too. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the men ultimately, it seems to me, have to sit down, formulate, implement, and lead in such a process. So it's up to the congregation to formulate a suitable process by which it can select elders and deacons. Now, just to throw out a couple of examples, just in my experience, as Frank could do this too, just over the years being affiliated with different churches, uh, many times uh, a selecting committee is selected. And these men have no authority. They're not going to pick the elders. They're just a screening committee. Uh, back at Brown Trail, I was stuck on one of these. Try not to ever do that again. Um, they appointed, uh, the, the elders wanted um, the two preachers, and uh, two or three of the preaching school instructors to form a committee. And what was our responsibility? Well, we just facilitated the congregation doing what these passages tell the congregation to do. So
so you involve the church by allowing them to you know turn in the names of people that they think are qualified and all the committee does is receive all of this data and then uh, you know sift through it and sort it out and and then present the results essentially to the congregation so they are given a full opportunity to be involved in the process and uh, uh, again see now this is all just ways to carry out what the passages say and I mentioned to you well how do you know a person's qualified you, you see the qualification you think you know this person pretty well but do they meet this qualification you know like how do they conduct themselves among those that are without the text says so like on the job in a secular job you don't ever go to their job place and see how they do so there has to be some means by which this information can be gathered and interviewing the individual himself is a very important role a very important part of that process and wisdom just needs to be used to try to talk with that individual about his own understanding of his strengths his weaknesses and whether or not he meets the qualifications when you go through that process and it can take weeks maybe months and there may be a lot of details involved in all that I'm just giving you general parameters at some point names would surface to the top that the congregation as a whole seems to indicate that they believe these men are qualified and they are willing for them uh, to serve in that capacity. Uh, typically our brethren then put those names before the congregation and stipulate a period of time that usually in my experience is at least a month, two weeks to a month, in which the members are again told. Now, you know, these are the ones that seem to be the uh, general uh, view of the church as being qualified. But there may be members who know things that have not surfaced. So you have two weeks or a month or whatever. And here's how our brethren put it. To give any scriptural objections as to why you don't think this man is qualified uh, to serve in that capacity. And, you know, you really have to stress this needs to be a scriptural objection. Because, again, we can allow our emotions to get involved. You know, I went to that brother some years ago and tried to borrow money and he wouldn't lend me any. So I don't think he ought to be an elder. Well, that doesn't mean he's not qualified to be an elder. That just means he didn't give you money. So all that has to be sifted through. Our brethren can be pretty um, thin in their involvement in this process. And then after that period of time goes by and the men who survive that process, then there would be some sort of formal installation service. Usually the preachers are involved in that. They don't have to be. Just, it could be anybody that says, okay, here's these three men or whatever, and uh, they are now officially members or else are serving in this capacity um, as you have indicated that you want done. Something along that line. And there's a lot of details that could be discussed and added to uh, this discussion, but that's my understanding of the selection process or details that are given in Scripture. Uh, the other thing that I want us to cover before we leave this topic is what does the New Testament say about the responsibilities of the members toward their elders? We see clearly what the elders are supposed to do with regard to the members, but does the Bible go the other direction and say, hey, you have responsibilities toward your leaders, toward your shepherds, and it certainly does in several passages. So, Lord willing, we will uh, pick up at that point. You need to respond to the gospel invitation. Thank you, uh, everybody.
here we we all know each other and I think uh, we're all New Testament Christians if though you need to come forward as a a member of the church who needs to come forward publicly uh, then you have an opportunity to do that as well let's stand and sing this hymn together Today is the day of salvation, tomorrow may be too late. There's danger and death in delay, except our saving grace. His life on the cross he has given, oh come while yet you may. He's earnestly pleading, oh make no delay.
You don't go to the right. You don't add man-made elements to the observance of the Lord's Supper. Nor do we go to the left in failing to observe it each and every Lord's Day. Let us continue to remember Jesus' sacrifice each and every week as we've been commanded to in His Holy Word. For this bread, which represents His body, for the fruit of the vine, that represents His blood, let us now go before Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this memorial feast where we can come together in, in Holy Communion so that we can remember and not forget what Jesus has done for us. We remember His body now as we partake of this bread that was hung upon that cruel cross in our stead. So in Jesus' name we pray. Father, we thank you so much for this fruit of the vine that represents the shed blood of Christ. Uh, we know, Father, that uh, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins, and for his sacrifice, we are eternally grateful. So in Jesus' name we pray. Includes the observance of the Lord's Supper. As a separate act of worship, we are also commanded to give of our means. Uh, as we have seen through Scripture over and over and over, uh, God does not want leftovers. He wants us to purpose in our hearts those things which we give to Him, that we are to give to Him of the first fruits, not of what might be left at the end of a long and difficult week. That when we prepare our budgets that we go through, and we honestly search and make sure that we give unto God in proper proportion to how he's given to us. He hasn't prescribed a certain percentage or an amount. He leaves that up to, to us to determine. And may we uh, engage our minds and use our wisdom to ensure that we comply with his commands so that we can take care of the needs of the church, that we can take care of, of folks here locally, and then also uh, to bless those congregations that are worldwide that also might need our assistance, just as the churches of old did. Let us go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we appreciate so very much the material blessings you shower upon us. Father, we live in a nation where uh, we have not only those things that we need, but many of the things that we want. Uh, we know that that's not the case for, for Christians everywhere around the world. And Father, we know we have a special responsibility to give uh, in a manner uh, that reflects how you've given to us. Uh, may we do so now at this time, giving you the thanks and the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.
anybody else needs to give, I'll leave the plate up front. We can get back in the service. Two hundred sixty-seven, two sixty-seven. Where the gates swing outward, never. Hey, thank you for another fine lesson on this particular topic. Um, very much needed, and I know that it's helpful to all of us as we go through this process. I'm hoping to be able to have an opportunity to visit with some of the brethren as I travel through that area. You mentioned the island of Crete. I'm hoping to be able to. Get in contact with them at least while I'm there. There, there are still our faithful congregations there, right? So, great. 267. Let's all stand together, please, as we sing, and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Sing the first verse of this. Let us sing. Just a few more days to be filled with praise and to tell the awful story. Then when twilight falls and my Savior calls, I shall go to Him in glory. I'll exchange my cross for a starry crown where the gates swing outward never. At His feet I'll lay every burden down and with Jesus reign forever.